0: Hello, my name is Jack Elliot Hobbs and welcome to Unlived Lives, a philosophical YouTube series and podcast in which we explore the lives my guests are not living and why. If you hear any unmotivated sound, it's likely to be my two dogs enjoying life entirely in the present, unaware of any disruption they may be causing. I hope you enjoy listening. My guest in this episode grew up in Northampton with her parents and brother before moving to Hertfordshire in 2000. She has an eclectic work background and draws upon all her experience for her current job working for a local mental health charity. Outside of work, she volunteers for another charity and for her church. Mimi Hollist, welcome to Unlived Lives. Thank you for having me. Amazing to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. Which one of your jobs has had the most profound impact
1: on you? Wow, what a way to start. They all have, they all have. Um, I would probably say my first job in tennis, I was working with uh, junior players um, and I think it was just being with people who have lived their passion their entire lives. I mean, you know, I was working with 10 year olds all the way up to adults and They have only lived and breathed tennis their entire lives, and seeing what that looks like when it comes to fruition.
0: Wow! So literally from a young age.
1: Yeah, the youngest people I was working with were like eight, nine years old already, dreaming of being tennis players, and were at the top of their game. So.
0: Wow, what was your role? Um,
1: So I was the performance coordinator. So would look after the junior players, like I said, and. uh, organizing their uh, tournaments abroad i would do that for the juniors and then one particular um professional tennis player from the uk as well just organizing their team as well so, wow yeah oh, amazing yeah. where do you feel most at home with people. So it's not a place, it's with my family and with my friends. So when I am in the kitchen or around a table, it's home is definitely a sense of being amongst family for me. Amazing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and and does that
1: evoke any particular memory at all? Um it it does. Yeah, just warmth and like with my family we laugh a lot there i have a small nuclear family but we're bigger we're part of a bigger extended family Mm. so just being around a big table eating and drinking and just laughing our heads off thats the (laughs) food yeah yeah, food and laughs that's what i like
0: amazing yeah amazing (laughs) and why do you have the ambitions you have
1: I, why do I have the ambitions I have? These are great questions. (laughs) Um, I would say, I think that um, I come from a family full of talented people and I've met a ton of talented people as well. Um, And the ambitions come from freedom, I would say, in that I was always given the opportunity to do whatever I wanted um, and given um, a belief, a system that it would all work out in the end. So, yeah. you know, if everything that I was doing um, and everything in my ambitions is a part of a bigger journey and all of that contributes to it. So I've spoken about tennis, which is not where I saw myself working, but it has, you know, what I've learned from there has given me skills to do what I do now. Um, and every every step of the journey has been like that there's always been something to gain and yeah i would say freedom and that there is there are no limitations to what i could choose to do or not do um given to me by the way i was raised i would say
0: oh wow Mm. Uh, uh, in what sort of way what what specifically in how you were raised
1: Um, Just that if you wanted to be an astronaut or a doctor, or if you wanted to do something completely different, um, I think culturally. So um, my background is I was um, born and raised in the UK, but I've got Nigerian heritage and... Um, in that culture um there are there are sort of very narrow paths to go down you would be a doctor an engineer a lawyer or an accountant those are probably the oh, big wow. four um, but growing up here and being with um, my parents who had a plan and changed the plan and um, there was always that do not be limited by what you feel like you have to do or well, what you can do anything is possible sounds teasy but that is the belief system I grew up with. that must have been fantastic
0: in hindsight to grow up with. Uh,
1: in some ways yeah because there was a lot of freedom in others there is a lot of choice out there we could mm. all be many things and we all, we are all many things but um I think that Yeah, it it came with mainly benefits and some challenges. And like I said, I've had an eclectic background because I've just been able to cherry pick what suits me and what I can get passionate about.
0: Mm. Is there a sort of antithesis to that?
1: Um, I guess so. Like I said, being kind of trapped in that there's too much choice Mm. and I could do, I don't know, would I be outstanding at one particular in one particular area, or am I just average in all of the areas? Jackal trade so, sort of idea. Yeah, do, yeah, yeah. There, there is the challenge of not knowing where you do belong, but equally there is um, an opportunity to find your feet wherever you are.
0: Mm. Mm. I, I sort of feel sometimes it, it, it's difficult in that way to not have foundation in, mm. in work, in what you do, in, in mm. that. that's what I find. Mm-hmm. What do you think?
1: I don't think my foundation comes from work. So um, going back to where it feels like home, it's being in the family and being a human mm. and being interacting with other humans that's where the foundation comes whatever I'll be doing it will be sorry in connection with people Um, and I think that's where the foundation is whether you know I'm doing traditional work or non-traditional work or raising a family which is work that that is probably where the foundation is not Mm. in the fact that I work for a charity now but could work anywhere next.
0: Mm. And so do you think it would be as effective if you perhaps didn't have such a core foundation in your
1: family? Definitely. I think that the family values I have are my foundation. Um, that, and I would say... if a faith um you know a religious faith that that's that underpins everything so that's probably where my foundation comes from and then everything else can be built on and rearranged and you know in the same way you have a house you can build an extension you Mm. can convert it back to what it was so i would say that it stems from that really is there an art to loading the dishwasher There is absolutely an art to loading the dishwasher and I am an absolute pedant about it and I am not (laughs) sorry. (laughs) So um, I can be really particular about how things are done from, you know, which way you put the knives, um, where the big plates go, where the bowls go. And I can be a little bit compulsive about how things are done. At the same time as being able to rationalise that actually, if you get there in the end, everyone's journey can be different, Um, and I can get hung up on detail. I do know that about myself, and that that has been a challenge sometimes. In that, um, you know, I go for job interviews, and they'll say, "How do how does all your work background tie together?" Mm. And you you know, traditionally, it's not a progression that's been step step step, but um, it is the little details that have all worked out. So. to come back round to the dishwasher there is absolutely a way and I will probably judge you if you don't do it my way but um yeah if it's in my house then I'll be loading the dishwasher (laughs) okay where does that come from um I think that there is uh, it's weird to talk about pandemics and epidemics given the time we are but there is a real Maybe it's always been a thing, but I think particularly um, around now in the world we're living in, there's a real epidemic, I guess you could call it, pandemic of perfectionism. Um, And that can be in how you do things, but probably more about how things are presented. Everything needs to look perfect and it can be really easy to Overinflate or catastrophize about how things might be if the little details aren't kind of lined up. And in the work I do now, the little details count when all of those are lined up, everything's fine. But if one thing is out, you'd really notice it. Right. So, um, I think it's partly to do with just me as a person being quite detail orientated, but also just living in a world where perfectionism is a real, um, It's a real aspiration of people at the moment. And yes, again, as I say, you can subscribe to that, or you can rationalise that you don't need to subscribe to it. But Mm. I think ultimately, unconsciously, a lot of us do. And I know that I do.
0: Where does that come from? Do you think? I mean, this is entering into a wider (laughs) conversation.
1: a few things, really. Um, I take pride in doing things properly, um, I also remember being given some advice, sort of growing up and looking quite different to the people that I grew up with, and that you know you cannot put a foot wrong because that has bigger repercussions than you mm. know who you might think you're alongside. Actually, there's a different perception of of you as a person. So I think probably that more than anything, like a you know not not a pressure thing or a familial thing, but more about. Um, fitting into um, fitting into a place where I already look different and uh, perceive differently. Right. Yeah.
0: Wow. That sounds like a journey.
1: Quite a journey, I can't mm. lie. Mm.
0: When did... Um, going back to the dishwasher, when did you discover that about yourself or when did it become apparent?
1: Really early on... Um, My brother and I are two years apart and um, it's really interesting talking to him about how he found his place in the family. But I feel like when we were really young, I needed to know that actually I'm the older sibling and things need to be like this. And then they work out because neither of my parents are like that. So this is quite, um, there are other people in the family who are like that, but it is quite particular to me being... Probably a bit more high strung than the people that um, I grew up in a household with. And uh, yeah, I remember sort of being quite young and playing with my brother and him not doing it right Mm. when it's playing, you know, (laughs) playing shouldn't have any form or structure, but yeah, it was a young age and yeah, probably part of the journey is learning to be okay with things not going your way, but the outcome being how I might have wanted it to be.
0: Mm. Oh, wow. And how does... Have you spoken about that
1: since with your brother? Oh, yeah, we speak about it all yeah. the time. And we, um, we're quite close, so we know each other down to a T. So... You know, it's really good to speak to him about it. So when we're putting the world to rights or trying to, like, muddle our way through life, Mm. um, it's a really good opportunity for him to say, well, actually, you're like this, remember? Mm. Um, So you might look at things like this, but this is the other perspective, so... Yeah, we do talk about it. We keep coming back to how we are and how he's really spontaneous and likes some grounding and has some rules, but is able to be really creative within that. So um, it has shaped who we both are, I guess.
0: Have you always been able to take his opinion or advice? Oh,
1: absolutely not. I did not trust (laughs) who he was or anything until we didn't become friends until... I was about to leave home. So we... How old were you then? um, 18 when I went off to university. But it took until, yeah, about six months before I left. I was maybe about 17 when we started to actually get along um and yeah it's it's a case of actually you've had really similar experiences um and you have the same values and you've been taught a particular way about looking at life but then you've got this bonus if you've had someone who can see it from a slightly different plane Mm. um but knows you well enough to tell you about yourself
0: is there anything you regret not doing due to fear
1: um Yes, I think so. I'm absolutely not one of these people who are like, oh, I live with no regrets, because mm. I do. Um, and I think that there is a piece that comes with um, being in my 30s as I am now. But I think I regret being hung up on a plan A, um, and not having any other sort of, I had a plan to, I I wanted to be an orthopaedic surgeon. And I picked, and I decided that when I was quite young. Um, and Picked everything I did at school and at uni to kind of fit that, and then actually realized probably just before I got to uni, if I'm really honest, but definitely once being in uni that it wouldn't suit me. You mm. know, how am I going to be a surgeon when I really thrive on being able to interact with people and talk to people. So need them to be awake <laughs> when I'm working <laughs> with sad. them. Yeah. Um and not really thinking about what else. And like I said, you know, that was in uni at my early twenties and only getting to the thirties and realising actually all of that has had value, mm. um, and I can interact and enjoy those connections with people. But I didn't need to be so hung up, or spend the rest of my twenties being like, "Oh, I failed because I'm not a surgeon." Mm. Because there's so many other things of equal value or more valuable to me that I've done. So,
0: where could um, where did the surgeon idea come from?
1: Um, I broke my foot when I was about six years old. I was um, I think I'm mentioning my brother a lot, but I was um, grassing him up for (laughs) something he'd done and how snitches get stitches. I tripped over one of his shoes at the bottom of the stairs and broke my foot in two places. Um, And even though it was such a long time ago, I really, I have such a vivid memory of the pain and how it felt when my foot was set so when it was put in a cast i honestly thought the orthopedic surgeon was a magician um and he was really lovely really warm he was um he was actually a nigerian like like my parents so and i just remember really connecting to that he was able to i went from not being able to when we were being when i was being driven to the hospital not being able to take a single road bump or turn in the road to having my foot set and that's when I was like right this is what I'm going to do
0: wow and and you carried that all the way yeah
1: and just a real interest I really like science and the body I think the body is the biggest masterpiece going Mm. you know it's by design it's incredible so um that plus yeah my own experience of being in hospital for that and a couple of other things just being like right I want to help people feel like they're not in pain anymore mm. um and that was you know six-year-old me really only saw that as like physical pain but actually there are lots of different ways you can be in pain and maybe the sort of route I've gone has helped people alleviate their pains I would say sure in a, in
0: a non-physical but mental yeah yeah yeah.
1: I mean currently it's emotional um before you know even before where um just in between tennis and um the counseling charity I'm at now it's customer service and it is just appeasing someone who might be really hurt over having a jumper that has a hole in it Mm. it again you know which means a lot to the person at the time so
0: Mm. So how did you how did you um discover sort of mental health work
1: um it was. So I worked in customer service and it was really interesting. There would be people who would just because you're a voice on the end of the phone would kick off and to the point where you could think, is it me or mm. where I started to wonder about what was Driving people to do that. What kind of days had they had? What was going on? What you know? Was it really just a hole in a jumper, or mm. was there something more? um At the time, I'd been living in London as well, and you know the pressure of living in London and um, socially and economically, and just trying to fit that all in. I really wanted to sort of lower the pace of what I was doing and be in a calmer pa- place um, as well. Um, I also had, uh, I think, like I said before, you know, decided I wasn't going to be a surgeon, but spent a lot of time wondering about what I might do instead. Mm. So at that point, um, moved back to Hertfordshire, um, discovered counselling and um, at the same time was looking for a job, found this job that wasn't in counselling, um, you know, and becoming a counsellor, but related to um, a journey into the self and finding peace from within Mm. so that's yeah that's how i came across counseling
0: oh wow where does your model of a normal home life come from
1: does a normal model exist Mm. (laughs) that would probably be my first question um my normal model comes from all i've known so that is uh i might come back to the table analogy so just you know that everybody having a place at a table um you know that doesn't necessarily need to be your mum, your dad or your siblings it can be anybody um it can it can be a person or it can be a sense of being in a in a collective of people um i don't think that there's a normal like there's a normal home life Mm. i just think that um Maybe I would say normal home life is the feeling of love and acceptance and belonging rather than, you know, oh, I had a normal household because I grew up with a dad and mum and brother. Sure, or, yeah. Yeah. So um, it's more around what what is present in emotions and in belonging than, than what the setup is.
0: Mm. Is it better to give money to government or to charity?
1: I get asked this a lot it's really interesting i spoke to someone a few months ago who was saying that charity work just subsidizes the government and the government should be responsible for what charities do and maybe to some degree that is true um i think that people need to if they want to give and they're in a position to give it needs to resonate with what they believe in so that might be the government for some people. That might be directly to the charity. That might be directly to who needs that charity. Um, it's quite a personal decision, I would say.
0: Mm. And do you have a decision in that area?
1: Um, personally, for me, uh, I mean, I feel like I get taxed for work and that's enough for the government. Mm. Um, and then where I might donate to a charity, again, is where it resonates with me. And it it's not always money. Um, sure. It can be time. But, um, you know, there are there are places where your money can go quite far. And I feel like I've got the freedom to do that because taxes what it is Mm. whether whether I think it's reasonable or not is another thing but Mm. tax is done and then you can think about what comes next and I feel like I've got resources to you know more time probably more more than anything but you know the government and its structure has allowed me to be able to work for a charity and Mm. volunteer at a charity and donate to other charities so I don't know if you could have one without the other, really. Um, but personally, I think my heart currently sits with charities. Not that I, I'm not kind of um, anti-establishment. Yeah, absolutely, and sure. yeah, and I'm not about to say drop taxes or anything yeah, yeah, like no. that because yeah. I think the government have a really difficult job to look after a huge group of people with lots of different needs. Um, and I wouldn't ask, I wouldn't want to do it. So, <laughs> rather sure. just let them have what they need to do it.
0: So. Mm so there's a, a sort of a certain harmony or disharmony depending on how you look at it between yeah. them both existing you need yeah.
1: i mean if the government was doing everything that what i think a lot of people expect of the government you might not have charities mm. um but then also i think that you know it does let the um like the philanthropic element of people Mm. kind of come to light when they feel like they're closer to the charity than if they were just kind of giving all their resources to the government and putting them in charge of being responsible of that.
0: So from a marketing perspective, it's more effective. Yeah.
1: I think it, it connects with people. Well, people like me, I can't speak for everybody, but people like me, um, or maybe people that, yeah, do need to feel like they can see where their charity is going. Um, yeah i think the charity's the right route for them so Mm. it can feel real and there is quite a lot of mistrust around the government Mm. um from some people so and even you know there there can be corruption everywhere even in charity but i think that there is some reassurance in being able to see um where where your resources are going you Mm. know i really like just before when we were talking about kind of you know you might be doing something with a charity. And it's not that I'm completely altruistic, that I do get a lot out of it, but I really resonate with hearing your time has done this or your resources has done that, or this is the child that you've helped and look at what they're learning in school because you've donated to that charity, Mm. for example.
0: What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you?
1: Hmm. I think... There are so many kind people. Um, Probably the kindest thing, and the thing that I thrive off is just allowing me to be me. So... The pedant that <laughs> stacks the dishwasher in the weird way <laughs> yeah. um, the person that doesn't have a traditional like career path um, you know just lets me crack on with who i want to be i think that's the kindest thing you know where i can be with people who do not judge or ask of any more or less of me mm. than just being myself um, that again comes a lot from family, from faith, from the people I spend time with, but I think that's the biggest kindness, that's what I live from actually, (laughs) like I find that really reassuring Um, and not everyone does that and there are environments where you can't do that and I think that 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 helps us as people thrive, so if I can be afforded that, and if I can afford that to others, mm. then that is the kindest act you can do. It doesn't cost much to allow people to just live their lives without judgment. Shame. Mm. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's the root of all shame, do you think?
1: I think Fear is a big part of it, whether it's fear on the part of the individual um, experiencing the shame because of what is supposed to be perceived and projected out to the world. But then also, if you're in an environment where you feel like you would be shameful, that says a lot about the people who are perhaps allowing you to go down that path. Mm. Um, You know, fear of difference on their part might cause people to not feel like they can themselves or? to be singled out yeah mm. yeah I think fear 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 is a root of shame yeah I would say that
0: yeah I guess it turns perhaps into a vicious cycle as well because you can have you know you don't shame then promotes the fear of then doing that again and and you sort of it feeds in into into one another doesn't it
1: yeah it is cyclic. Mm. It is. That's and then, a much better way of yeah, putting it. <laughs> no, no, but how... Absolutely. That's You've hit the nail on the head. Mm. You, you might do it again, or you might do more to cover up your shame, and then the shame grows, and then you... I don't... You could, I imagine, and again, I guess, thinking about when I felt ashamed, you can really... That shame can grow um, Mm. and you can really lose your sense of self without that, um, you know, to a point where it becomes a little bit of a comfort blanket. Mm. You think, well, this is all I know now and I'm always going to have to hold this shame. um, And I could sit here and say on a good day, yes, the shame is a part of my journey. But on other days, that's really it's something that can stay with you um, and there's a lot of work to be done around kind of shedding that
0: in society
1: in society individually for me personally that it can be
0: Mm. Mm. Uh, for me in my therapy experience it it, despite you know feeling like I'm much more capable on top of Mm -hmm. life you know certainly in regards to shame Mm. It doesn't feel like it ever. It's ever truly resolved. Mm. You know, there's always a. It always comes back and goes. Hello, I'm still here. <laughs> but it's just your ability to, move through it, move past it, move mm. with it, feel it, and then keep going.
1: Mm. That's it. Is it? Is it to be lived with and tolerated, or is it to be shed? You know? Mm. I I, know. I
0: mean, is it possible to be completely shed?
1: I think think so i mean uh,
0: you know we're generalizing well i'm generalizing
1: yeah but
0: you know it's case by case i guess
1: i i don't know as i say maybe on some days you can live through it or be above it or kind of look at it in the rear view mirror mm. um but then I do also think that it is character building and a part of who you are so um not that you would hold on to it I think that we can when we're not addressing it it can it can be um held on to um, mm. and hold you back sometimes but um it yeah it is for me um, and you know maybe if we are generalizing it is something to be managed and and tolerated and sometimes overcome in those situations where shame might hold you back from kind of stepping forwards.
0: Do you ever think we could be in a world where there is there is no shame hypothetically and how would that affect society?
1: I don't I personally don't think so. I think that shame is a part of humanity, you know, uh... Even if it it could be, you know, just thinking about even why we wear clothes or, Mm. um, you know, why people don't talk about what salary they're earning or how much savings they have. I think that it's part of society. Um, And sometimes, I mean, we spoke a bit about fear and about how fear can kind of sometimes be a fuel for people. But I think shame is just... It couldn't all be roses and uh, you know shame can demonstrate your resilience um and i think society has to be resilient and there are things in history that have happened in society that we shouldn't forget and we should feel shameful about and have to hold that to be able to make better decisions in the future
0: Mm. lessons to be learned from it
1: always yeah always
0: and yeah going forward and you, you touched on briefly um the idea of of people being ashamed to tell people how much they earn mm. would you be comfortable telling friends and family and people how much you earn
1: my really close friends and family yes absolutely i um i spent some time in spain and it's really interesting actually in their culture Uh, you can see you can look up anybody's salary in a company that you work with and Mm. it's not kind of shrouded in secret so maybe salary compared to savings actually that's probably a bit different because your savings demonstrate what you do with your funds when Mm. you get them um I think at where I am now in my journey yeah with the people I'm closest to I think they would know but um I wouldn't you know I wouldn't broadcast it on my linkedin profile for Mm. example but because there is an element of yes you know i can be open but if the world isn't open you've also got to be in the world as well as like of the world
0: Mm. yeah what would you prefer
1: um I think I would like a little bit more transparency. Um, I think that there are a lot of mixed messages and a lot of misinterpretations from some of the ways that we operate as a society. Equally, it's such a delicate balance. I don't think you could go too far the other I think too far the other way would cause different problems, but to an equal effect if there was too much out there about everybody.
0: Because mm. there's such a diverse you know, range of, as you were saying before, with, with governments, they have to deal with people with so many different needs yeah, and, you know, situations. Exactly. That Yeah, I mean...
1: No, it wouldn't suit everybody, I don't think, complete transparency, but equal, equally, you know, if the government got a bit more secretive, that wouldn't suit the, the masses either.
0: I'm sure, you know, the, the idea of... The term one-size-fits-all... I often feel is is used, you know, <laughs> to try and solve problems. Yeah. And obviously doesn't. What do you think?
1: Um, no, I don't. And I think that I mean, you and I we've spoken a bit about therapy and counselling, and I think that actually we're all we're all such individuals that there is no, you know, unless depending on what it is, there is hardly anything where one size does fit all. Mm-hmm. Um it i just don't think that that's the case i think that we are all on a journey even if you go into a shop and you're a particular clothes or dress size you know you can go into another shop and be a different size Mm. or you know the t-shirts might fit you in one size and then the shorts fit you in a different Mm. you know there isn't one size fits all we're all on a journey. there are some things which can benefit the majority but I don't think one size fits all. I think we're all on quite personal journeys, which contribute to where we're going as a collective as well. Um, And that will benefit. And I guess with government, their aim is to uh, benefit as many people as possible. But I don't think we could live in like utopia, um, you know, as things are now. (laughs) Do
0: you think it's possible though?
1: I mean um, my faith talks about where utopia is possible um, but I I just don't think that you know we in humans in this time are able to achieve that
0: mm. and the root of that is
1: none of us live in utopia none of us as humans are in utopia there is light and dark in all of us so that will be within the world mm. um, yeah yeah
0: mm balance <laughs> yeah always you balance can't have yin without the yang those no, all those yeah
1: no and like I said it has some negative effects, but also it can be part of the journey you know what I really I think my personal philosophy is you were you were going to get to a point whether you have 60% negative and 40% positive or 50-50 or 70-30 you're always going to get to that point and um, it's just which way, which we can kind of decide on and and amend. And that's that's what the journey is, kind of figuring out which way you're going to go.
0: Mm. If you knew you only had one year to live from now,
1: Mm -hmm. how
0: would you spend the next 12 months?
1: Um, I think I would go bananas with making sure I have as much time with the people that I love um and just really cherishing those moments there's a lot that i want to see and do in the world like i would i feel like i would rather stay at home with my family than go traveling if i'm like oh i've never been to new zealand for example mm. but it would be just to really make the most of that time with with the family um and then um just like we were talking about before really kind of get to grips with this um concept of you have to let regrets go now so that you can enjoy that year um i think that's what i would spend the time doing you know it'd need work but you know whether or not there's time for that there is always time for being with the people that i love who or
0: what might have stopped you from realizing your full potential
1: me it's myself that sounds a bit selfish but i i have been privileged with pretty much all of the opportunities I could have hoped or dreamed for and if I haven't taken hold of them it's because I've told myself I can't or let that kind of negative chatter get really loud um you know there are I'm not saying that there aren't people or obstacles or situations that, you know, have been beyond my control, but I think how I perceive all of that can determine whether or not I'm going to meet my full potential.
0: Mimi Hollis, thank you so much for coming on the programme. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jack. It's been a pleasure.
0: Amazing. (laughs) If you enjoyed this exploration into Mimi's unlived life, please make sure to give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel for a new episode every Wednesday. Did you gain something from this episode? Let me know in the comments section. I hope you enjoyed watching.